You're listening to Scaling Up Services, where we speak with entrepreneurs, authors, business experts, and thought leaders to give you the knowledge and insights you need to scale your service-based business faster and easier. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeld. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Scaling Up Services. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Melanie Parrish. She's a public speaker. She's a master coach. She's also an author of the Experimental Leader book. And we're going to talk a little bit about her work that she does with leaders. We're going to talk about her book, about some of the ideas she has around how to really actualize yourself as a leader, how to really meet your potential, realize your potential. I love talking with other coaches, with other people that work with leaders and businesses and teams. It's always fascinating to hear the stories, talk about the different approaches, what we found being in sort of organizational development, leadership development work. It's always fascinating, fascinating things out there. With that, Melanie, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. I'm I'm really excited to talk to you about leadership. Yeah. So I always love to hear the backstory, how people got into the work they're doing now. Tell us your journey. Tell us about how you got into leadership coaching. Uh, what was your background? I see I was looking through your uh, bio there. I saw a reference to Theory of Constraints. I'm a big Theory of Constraints fan. So oh, that's <laughs> I love, amazing. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm kind of finding interesting kind of probably uh, uh, stories and connections there that, that we have. But uh, yeah, tell us the story. How did, how did you get into doing what you're doing today? Well, I, I was always in sales and marketing, and I reached a point where I was looking for a change in career. And I found out about coaching. It was kind of the early days of coaching. And I loved the idea of it. And the deeper I got into it, the more I understood about asking questions and helping people sort of understand their own minds more deeply. Mm. And so I actually, I was at the time doing mortgages and I switched into coaching. Um, I I wanted to have, you know, deep relationships with clients and I started to coach and because my background was in sales and marketing, people started coming to me in the beginning because they thought I could help them sell better. I could help them market better. And so as I kept my clients over time, the they were no longer in their early days in their businesses and so I started to work more with them on their problems and operations. I have one client I've had since for the last 20 years, literally 20 years. And in the beginning, she was a solopreneur. And now she's written uh, seven New York Times bestselling books and has a line of products and is an internet has an international following. And so her work over the years has changed so much. And her problems have changed so much. And I've gotten to kind of go along for the ride. And the same is true for many of my clients. Many of them have been around for a long time. So I I just keep getting to learn. And then about eight or nine years ago, I started working with a bunch of guys. In the beginning, it was a bunch of guys in IT who were Uh IT leaders. 
And at the time I thought, oh my gosh, I don't come from an IT background. You know, what do I have to offer? But they seemed to like the way my brain worked as a thought partner and they knew the IT. And so I started coaching more in tech and mm. startups and then yeah. also more in other organizations. I always find that interesting in terms of, you know, as coaches and, and for people that hire coaches, this kind of domain expertise side of things. I mean, I guess what's your kind of experience so far in terms of how much do you need to know about a client's business sort of operationally or strategically and how much does it not matter? I mean, what have you kind of found in, in terms of the clients you've worked with? How much do you need to know and how much do you not need to know in terms of being a successful coach? Well, I think the idea that one of us needs to know it is even false. I don't think either of us, if we're doing really good work together and kind of touching on the edge of innovation, there's some things that each of us knows. But the biggest thing that I feel like is what I offer of value to my clients is to be a thought partner when neither of us knows. Mm -hmm. So if you're innovating, if you're going into new places, say you're creating new software or a new product or filling a gap in an industry somewhere, you're not going down a tried and true path. And you have to be able to think through how you're going to do that. And so I feel like I offer value to my clients, not because of what I know, but because I can help orient them to the learning it takes to go into new places. Yeah. yeah. And so let's talk a little bit about leadership. I mean, there's, you know, obviously sort of coaching, coaching exists at all sorts of levels for all sorts of reasons. But I think leadership coaching is a particular kind of, you know, is, is a little different or has its own kind of challenges or its own kind of objectives and, and models and stuff. Tell me a little bit about as you've gotten into the leadership coaching side, what have you learned that really is is critical in terms of coaching leaders and, and whether it's, you know, the frameworks or the approaches or the questions that you ask to really help them sort of step into leadership? Sure, absolutely. Well, and, and a lot of these are in my book, sort of the key things that I use with my clients are in my book. Mm -hmm. And I would say some of the, the real key things is that anytime we're trying to change to do something new, it's an experiment. We're experimenting all the time, but it's whether or not we actually collect data about those experiments. The other thing that's sort of a principle that I use on a regular basis is Eliyahu Goldratt's work on the theory of constraints, trying to find the bottlenecks and to focus attention in those areas. He once said that management attention is the biggest bottleneck of all in North America. And I really believe that. Getting my clients to point their attention on the things that they want to have happen is like a superpower for them. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I'm, I'm a fellow student of Goldratt and, and I love a lot of his concepts. And I think one thing that's really interesting there is with that theory of constraints, with that, that idea of there are many problems in the business, but there's there's only one gating problem. I just find that a lot of times people will focus on problems that are easily solved, not problems that are <laughs> that are going to advance whatever it is you're trying to advance. Tell me about how you kind of help clients refocus or, or identify and focus on the things that are really going to make a difference in terms of advancing the work that they're trying to improve upon. One of the most obvious practical things is I always try to get them to use a Trello board and to make a list of things that the company is waiting for them on. 
so that they try to remove themselves as the bottleneck. I can't tell you how many leaders I work with who, if you actually distill it down, they're the mud that everyone gets stuck in because they delay decision-making. And so just from a really practical standpoint, just teaching leaders to stop being their own bottleneck is one of the most powerful things that I can do with a client. And what typically is in the way? I mean, what is this a, a, a practical issue? Is this a psychological issue? Is this mindset? I mean, what? why do they create the mud <laughs> that other people get stuck in? Sometimes it's decision fatigue. Like they just get too tired of making decisions and they get an email that asks them to, you know, make a decision on a color for a website or something. And they just think, oh, I'll have to look at that later because they don't have the capacity in the moment. And then later never comes. Sometimes it's budget. If I approve that thing, we're going to have to spend you know, thousands and thousands of dollars, and I'm not ready to do that. Sometimes it's just that they can't think through everything that one email question brings to them. They can't think through all the consequences, so they put it off until they can. And so actually focusing on how people can manage their own response and then also teach their organization to get their attention I feel like really helps move things forward. It sounds like some of those things are kind of being decisive. Some of those things are how to carve out the right amount of time to actually process the things you need to process. I mean, how much does this become helping them kind of manage their energy and schedule and calendar and task list? I guess how practical do some of these things become? Yeah, some of it's super practical. Yeah. Some of it's teaching your team that if they don't hear back from you in 48 hours, ask again. Yeah. <laughs> I love those <laughs> ground rules about how to interact with me. Yeah. Yeah. Like if you haven't seen it in 48 hours, I've forgotten. You uh -huh. know, that's that's almost universal for most leaders, uh -huh. but they don't always design it with their teams. So their teams don't necessarily know that. Yeah. So their teams will wait. I sent you an email and they the team becomes like the master at documenting, which isn't actually removing a bottleneck. The only the only thing that does is cover their rear end. But yeah. really what you need is someone who's going to shake the palm trees and get your attention. Yeah, it's interesting. I talk a lot about surrounding yourself with the right people. And, and sometimes the right people are not people that look and think just like you. You know, you need other people that, are, you know, are going to compliment you or balance you. I guess, tell me how this, sort of this process of, you know, managing yourself as leader when, you, when you're putting together your team or you're working with your team, how, how do you kind of treat this, you know, strengths and weaknesses for the leader and strengths and weaknesses on the team? Tell me a little bit about that. I always believe that you want a team that is as diverse of thought as possible. If a leader is leading well, they're fostering an environment where people can share ideas and the more ideas that can be shared, the more information the leader has. We get blind spots and we do kind of crazy things as leaders when we get stuck in our own viewpoint and we aren't able to see sort of a 360 view of the world. Yeah. So I definitely think that a good leader is more curious and has more of a blank slate in terms of leadership rather than pushing their own agenda. I want them to be fostering that communication and in an environment where people are free to share ideas, diversity becomes really valuable. But I don't necessarily mean diversity like you check all the boxes for ethnicity or orientation or those mm -hmm. kinds of things. I actually am thinking about diversity of thinking. Like yeah. you want people who are steady. You want people who have good attention to detail. You want people who are really good at communication and people interaction. You want people who set good 
strategy. And those are different brain types. And I always want a team to be diverse in those. And then I want them to communicate a lot about what they see with each other. Yeah. And how, as a leader, how do you how do you identify some of those blind spots or identify some of the things you might need to incorporate into your team to help create some balance or create some diversity, you know, in, in thinking and in people's kind of approach. How, how as a leader, do you become aware of those, those spots, those things you need to balance out? Well, I mean, I've used a disc tool for a long time. I find it to be incredibly useful in having conversations about diversity and setting a profile, even if you don't actually use the instrument to screen people with having the conversation about the kind of person you're looking for so you can probe in an interview and not just what kind of person do we want and then you talk about the job, but what kind of person do you want? How do you want their neural pathways to work? Yeah. I think is really valuable. And the more people that can be in on those conversations, the more you find out you know, what you're looking for. What's the dream under that hire? What are you hoping they will do for the organization? Because there's a lot of dreams attached to hires. Oh, interesting. Tell me more about that. Well, we hire because we want something to change in some way, even if it's just that we want to go back to what we had before the last person left. Mm -hmm. And so that dream may not be the same for everyone who's on a hiring committee or everyone who's in an organization. And we see this when, you know, you have a new hire and all of a sudden they're maxed out really fast because everybody has something they hoped that person Mm -hmm. would do. (laughs) The dump. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They get really busy real fast. Yeah. So I just think that it's important to try to be as explicit as as you possibly can with what you're hoping will happen. Every hire is an experiment. And to be clear about what you're hoping that experiment, what's the hypothesis for that experiment? What do you hope will happen in that organization? I think is really helpful. Yeah. And so let's talk about that. I mean, because the title of your book, The Experimental Leader, when you're referring to kind of the experimental leader, what do you mean by that? Talk to me more about sort of the hypothesis approach. What are the things that actually constitute a valid or a a good experiment? And how do you use that as, as a leader? Sure. Being an experimental leader is essentially a shift in mindset. So we have lived and died by our ideas in the corporate world for a long time. You know, people have their pet projects, you pitch, you have to make a good, strong argument for your case. And then if it fails, then you may fail as a leader. So being an experimental leader is taking a step back and thinking of everything new that we try as an experiment. If we want something to change in our organization and we try something, we want to run it as an experiment. We want to collect data on whether or not it worked. We want to prototype so we're not investing huge amounts of money before we find out if it may or may not work. And so becoming an experimental leader takes some real skills of stepping away from sort of being the boss. When we first start leading, we emulate leaders that we've seen in the world. And the one I always talk about is the dad boss, the all-knowing dad boss who knows everything and has all the answers and tells you exactly what to do. Becoming an experimental leader is stepping away from those sorts of reactive leadership styles and stepping into a frame of curiosity where you say, you know, what do you want to try next? What did you learn? What will you try? What's your next experiment? What's the next thing you want to try? So it's a cycle of looking, learning, and then re-experimenting until you get to a new status quo that you're really happy with. Tommy, you mentioned something earlier. I'm kind of curious how you incorporate it into kind of the experimental leader framework. I guess I'll put it around 
kind of the word of accountability or responsibility. Like, how do you get commitment or how do you drive accountability in an organization for actions and results, but still keep an experimental approach? I mean, I'm just kind of curious how you integrate those things. Do you, or how do you reframe, I guess, accountability in experimental kind of terms? The way that you do that, you know, people have different styles. So uh, it's not prescriptive in that the way I might do it might be different than the way you might do it or someone else might do it. Like we have to account for our own individual style and how we're going to run experiments in our organization. That said, I think the biggest skill that we need is to see them as experiments so that we say, hey, we did that thing last week. What happened? Catch me up on what data you collected Come back to me again when we've collected some data on it, and then we'll make the decision. So I think that the way that I keep track of experiments is I do it in Trello. I like Trello. It works for me. As a tool, it's a good place just to plop things that I want to look at. I set... (laughs) Yeah, I really like Trello. And I find that just opening a card in Trello and jotting down an experiment and figuring out when I want to look at it again so that I keep myself accountable to the fact that we're actually doing an experiment is that's just one trick. People can do it in a variety of ways. Some is just to have a list with each staff member of what experiments they're doing and do a one-on-one once a week to check in on their experiments. Yeah. The thing that I want to say is this isn't something that we're adding to the workload of people. This is work people are already doing. We're just framing it differently and collecting data differently. So this doesn't take the place of the regular work. This is the work they're already doing. Got it. And, and what is the data that you're collecting? I mean, tell me a little bit about how you decide what you want to collect. I mean, there's there's all sorts of things we could can collect about situations and people and projects. How do you sort of zero in on the the data that's really going to be meaningful or helpful in terms of making decisions or, uh, you know, advancing your, your thinking? I think that the, I'm trying to think of a really good example. Sure. I mean, marketing is so easy to find data in, mm-hmm. you know, I ran a Facebook ad. I had X number of likes. I sold X number of products. Did it work or did it not work? I, did a newsletter, how many people opened it. That data is really readily available. We might try a new accounting program. If we do, do we have better data? How does it improve our data? What do we see? How are we using that data? How many people are looking at that data? There's in any person's work, you can figure out what's the thing you should be measuring. And that's usually a good place to start experimenting. For me as a coach, how many clients do I have? How many people are on my newsletter? How many people are on my Twitter? How many people buy my book? How many people sign up for my course? How many people download my podcast? Those would be things I might measure to see if I'm making an impact in the world. Yeah. If you see any trends going up or down or changing in some way. Right. If I send out marketing, do I lose followers or gain followers. Yeah. And is there anything about the experiment design itself that you suggest or strategies that you recommend in terms of thinking kind of strategically about your experiments and and how you sort of set them up or what you do with them or, you know, how you collect the data that becomes 
important to you know using this approach effectively as a leader? Well, I have sort of prescriptive questions in my book, but the biggest thing that's important just to to grab is you know what's your current re- current reality? Mm-hmm. What do you want it to look like? What's the gap? What are the barriers that keep you from getting there? And then what do you want to try? What's your next thing to try to see if you can work on that barrier and help remove it? And then after you do it, you say, well, did it work or did it not work? What did I learn? And then you do another cycle. If you could see me, I'd be, you know, I'm cycling my hand, (laughs) you know, like cycle, 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 iterate. Like we need to iterate often. I think it's one of the reasons coaches get to sound smart occasionally is we iterate a lot because we walk in lots of people's lives. Yeah. It's always one of the things that's fascinating being in coaching is you get to see sort of similar situations play out, you know, in different ways in different companies and, you know, how the culture fits, how the situation kind of changes the outcomes and, and kind of taking those patterns and those learnings from from place to place. Yeah. Right. And you might get even best practices, right? Yeah. Like you we tried this somewhere else. Here's an idea. Try this, <laughs> you know, yeah. and it may or may not work, but yeah. it, it is, that's, that's sort of the best practices world. And then there's also the, what would you like to try? What's the new experiment that no one's done before that you can try? Yeah. And, and do you find there's a difference between, you know, kind of intentionally running experiments and just kind of spinning your wheels and, and how do you help kind of differentiate between the two or get people out of kind of stuck in the mud to, you know, really making, you know, decisive or putting together thoughtful experiments that are actually, it's going to move their thinking forward versus just kind of, you know, scrambling. You know, I've, I've worked in organizations that had sort of a flavor of the month approach Mm, and maybe a flavor of the year. Like they bring in a consultant, they do some new thing, they'd try it for a year. And then they all went, yeah, I don't know. That didn't really work. I feel like with any learning, the implementation of the idea is the most challenging place. Everybody thinks it's fun to learn something new, but to actually have a solid plan for implementation to stay with it over time, I feel like is really important. I feel like if it was worth doing once, you should commit probably three years to it to know whether or not you like it. And that's that management attention again. The managers wander off to the next big idea And then the other ideas fall off. So I do think, I think uptake, I think coaching helps with integration of new ideas. So if you go to a course and you want to make sure you integrate the learning, hire a coach for three months and get them to just push you on it until Mm -hmm. you've integrated the learning. I think there's a variety of things that you can do like that, that are good experiments around new things, new ideas. Yeah. Do you find that there are certain leadership styles, personalities, traits that allow someone to learn from experiments faster or benefit from them more quickly than other folks? Strangely, it's not the people that usually are perceived. It's the detail people, the people who can run a steady, repetitive process over and over again. I see them improve over time. If you think about the magazine, Cooks Illustrated. Mm -hmm. They do such an interesting job talking about experimenting. It's one of my favorite places to go for recipes. They'll decide they want to make cheesecake and they'll try five recipes and they'll change the cook times and they'll change. They'll run multiple steady experiments until they find the one that they think is the most delicious. And then they'll publish all the things they tried and then they'll give you the recipe that they preferred. 
Yeah, it's like America's test kitchen kind of thing. It's like they'll they'll take yeah, uh, but they tried know. stuff. Yeah, well, and, and, and all they, sorts of primary versions of it. Yeah, like you said, different cook times, different you know, changing the ingredient levels. And they have a good strategic intent. Yeah. They know they want it to taste the best, or be the prettiest, or be the. They've got a goal for how they're evaluating the recipe. Well, so let's talk about that because I think that's an interesting one, and it's certainly you know I find it comes up a lot when anytime you kind of take this experimental approach, which is how do you you know how do you define success? How do you define done? Like what's the, what are the criteria you're going to use to evaluate your results? And the thing that I'm curious about, or the certainly the thing that I found is that it's a really different situation depending on if you do that upfront or not. Tell me a little bit about how you've, how you've seen that play out. Well, the longer I do this and the more that I work with this material, and I've been writing this book for seven years. So <laughs> I've been working with it for a long time yeah. and digging into it for a long time. The more I become clear that understanding clearly the vision, mission, and values of your organization is the foundation for setting up intents for what you want to happen. Because you don't want people just running around experimenting willy nilly. Mm -hmm. You want it to be within a framework for what you intend to have happen. So for example, if I have a strategic intent that my business will double in size next year. That helps orient the thinking in my organization. That might mean that operationally, I'm going to increase my budget on marketing and pursue client acquisition. It might mean that we're going to operationalize increasing the business, the the annual spend of all of our clients. And it might mean that we're going to attend three conferences this year that we've never attended before. If I have a different strategic intent, we might have different things that we want to do. A different strategic intent would be that we're going to trim the fat this year. Yeah. And then we're going to cut costs everywhere. There's not one strategic intent that's better than the other, but the decisions on the ground are made based on what the intent is. Yeah, I think having having that kind of framework, kind of the broader strategic framework to make decisions in, or at least to guide yourself on the outcomes, or, or what do you experiment on? What do you do with the data? What decisions you're trying to make? And how does it align with those those bigger picture objectives is key. Melody, if, if people want to find out more about you, about the book, about the work that you do, what's the best way to get that information? The best way is to go to my website, melanieparish.com forward slash experiment. You can find out how to buy the book there. There's also information on my website about podcasts, about free downloads, about all sorts of things that you can get there. You can find out more. And I'd love for you to you know get to know more about how you can become an experimental leader. Yeah. No, this has been great. I, I'll make sure that the links are in the show notes. So People can click through, look at your work, look at the book. I love the topic and I love the approach. I think, you know, too many people go in to these leadership positions kind of thinking that they have to know it all or they have to they have to have all the right answers right off the bat. And I think that really hinders, you know, not only their performance, but really the organization performance. So I like the thinking, I like the mindset, and I like the work that you do. I appreciate the time today. Thank you so much. It is hard work being a leader. And I wholeheartedly believe that having an experimental mindset can help leaders breathe just a little easier because they're sharing the burden with their team. Yeah, no, this is great. I encourage everyone to go check out the book and check out the website. This is great. Thank you for taking the time today. And I look forward to keeping in touch. Thanks so much for having me. It was really fun. You've been listening to Scaling Up Services with business coach Bruce Eckfeldt. 
To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets, and access other great content, visit the website at scalingupservices.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at scalingupservices.com slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.